There we go. Good evening. Is everybody well? Everybody warm? Everybody awake? Sure? Louder? Thank you. Enthusiastic about life and don't take your cues off me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm going to talk on comparison, which I think is... So we've been doing this talk over the past few weeks on what is killing me. Sounds pretty harsh, but I think there's a reason for that. And um, comparison is one of those things, A, I know quite a lot about, and B, it is something that can completely kill you, cripple you, mess you up. So I think it's important, so we're going to crack on. So we live in a world that is orientated around self, um, particularly self in relation to others. And on one hand, that's a really healthy thing. That's what community is. It's what relationships are made of. Um, it's what communities built is. But on the other hand, it can, done badly, or when it's corrupted, it can lead to a valuing of self and others based on comparison to self and others. So I'll tell you what I've not done. Hey. Um, so the rise of social media. Now, for the majority of us in this room, uh, millennial types and pesky sort of 20s, 30s, some of us are slightly above that, some are slightly below that, some are a lot above that. And um, it amplifies this, this kind of comparison that we make with the world around us and other people in an unhealthy way um, because it removes... Basically, it removes the tangible aspect of relationship and it um, gives us the highlights of other people's lives. So our highly media and entertainment-driven culture that we live in, particularly today when culture is pretty, I'd say it's pretty empty. Like we live in quite a sort of, it's just, it's kind of, I call it like kind of flat culture. So nothing's orientated around like a movement or a protest particularly, well, unless you look at this week, or a statement. Um, our entire, like, it's, it's very shallow. That's how we view culture today. Everything's a little bit empty. Um, and our entire lives are bombarded with images and ideas and sounds of what we need to be in order to be worth something or to be successful or at its very worst, to be loved. And that's all on a very superficial level, to be honest. And for a generation, and for everybody actually, but for, especially for our generation, who are brought up amongst such thinking, it's highly destructive and it robs us of so much. Our whole culture and society are orientated around such thinking, and even, I'd say, even our churches. So whether it's comfortable or not, I would say that... To be in the type of church we are in, almost can fuel it in a way. It's a mate like so. I love this church a bit. So don't get me wrong. I'm not having a rant against the church, but um, this, this the style that we're in and the kind of the churchmanship that we're in can actually, if we're not careful and we don't keep a check on it, can fuel such type of thinking. So it's very performance driven. Um, we have this, oh, this little worship leader dude. There he is, Steve O'Rourke, in line form. <laughs> So, um, so, yeah, so if you think about it, we live in a, in a church community and culture that is based on, our, our gatherings are 
20, 30 minutes of some worship where someone leads you with a guitar that's kind of reflective of going to a gig or something like that. It's kind of performancey. It's not that. I know that. Don't get me wrong. But it can step into that kind of world if we're not careful. And it's also based on week in, week out, being able to communicate for 30 to 45 minutes very well. Now, this, isn't a, this is not a dig on rich, don't get me wrong, but often it can be, you can, you can talk, so I've been in plenty of church meetings where you can talk for 30, 45 minutes, even an hour sometimes, and not say a lot, but you can say a lot really, really well. So it can be quite empty, quite bland, you're not really giving a point across, but the way you communicate it is brilliant and you're energetic and all of that stuff. So unless we keep it in check, we live a church life that's filtered through such a way of thinking and that kind of world thinking. And it's something that's foisted onto us. So this isn't like a, um, sometimes it's not a choice. We live in this world and we dwell within it. And this comparison thing that we have to give to other people, the way that we perform, the way our media works, is placed onto us rather than it's something that we control. And I tell you, like, so I'm really grateful that I get opportunity to speak to you and I get to lead stuff. And it's, it is, it's a privilege. But I tell you now, like, there's so many times that when I was younger, I would look out and think, oh, I'd love to be able to do that. How come I never get a chance to do that and all that sort of stuff? But um, I tell you now, the more you get chance and opportunity to do this kind of thing or lead worship or run a host team or any other sort of opportunity or you know, that kind of stuff, um, the worse it gets, the, more, the worse the comparison to other people gets. So, teenager looking at a preacher thinking, I would love to be able to do that, I'd love to be able to preach like that. It's fine, you're only looking at the person in your church the moment you stand here, you go to places like New Wine, you go to, you look online, you go to every podcast going, and it's always amazing to, so easy to just slip into this, I wish I could be like them and just do all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's something we have to keep a check on. And I think this generation, more than any other, struggles in this in terms of how it's self-inflicted. So it's something that is done to us. I like to call it like, almost like a violence that's done to us. So the world inflicts a violence of comparison onto us, but we also inflict a violence on ourselves. And... Um, this is because of our engagement with the world. So we've recently had a big series on spiritual practices, and um, particularly on our use of social media. And if you're here last week, Andy spoke on consumption, and this is really just a continuation of that. We consume media now to the point of it, it controls us, not the other way around. Now, I have Facebook and I have Twitter, I have Instagram, and I know the sense in which it connects us socially and relationally to each other, but I also know how it can detach you from community. It's a two-edged sword. So if you delete it, all of a sudden, you're not invited to any of Carrington's barbecues, or you're not, you don't know what's going on at church sometimes, or it's, it's just a, hard, it's a lot harder in today's world to engage with people and community without having like a Facebook group of some sort. I don't necessarily think that's healthy, but it's just the way it is. Um, if you keep it and you don't keep a check on the way that it controls you, rather than you control it, it spirals. But at the end of the day, it's still a choice whether or not we engage with it and whether we keep it. 
And one of the biggest issues is we allow it to seep into our thinking and our worldview. So we take this world that is doing a violence of comparison to us and forcing us to look at ourselves in relation to others and our value in relation to others. That's a, that's a thing, that's just the way the world is, but also we can engage with it and make it happen to ourselves. So the pastor in America, Steve Furtick, says this. I think Rich might have used this in one of his talks a few weeks ago, but I like it, so I stole it again. So we struggle with insecurity because we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel. So we seek affirmation, worth and community in others, and that's normal. But what isn't normal is relying upon that for our understanding and affirmation about who we really are um, beneath the surface. So everybody's going through stuff, right? More than, some more than others. There's loads, like, you never know from what you see on the surface what actually is going on. So we spend so long looking at other people and their amazing lives or the way in which other people give them value or elevate them. And we immediately orient, orient ourselves and our self-worth based on other people's success or their perceived popularity or the opportunities they're given. Just easy to look at other people and say, because they're getting that, I don't get this. And it's, it's, not, it's not how it works, it's a lie. So what it does, it paralyzes us. And it stops us seeking out the full expression of who we are. It makes us create a false persona that isn't us. And it stops us seeking and fulfilling our calls. And what we're effectively doing is we are comparing our insides with someone else's outside. It's a completely unhealthy and ungodly thing to do. Now, I'm going to be really vulnerable with you, because someone has to, in nice Middle England, stiff upper lip culture, I'm going to be all like really honest and brutal and tell you about some of the stuff that goes on for me in this. So for me, comparison crippled me for nearly a decade. So I felt the call to ministry when I was 18. I'm now 34. Think about that. And I'm only just entering into ministry. That's what comparison can do to you. So I was the guy who always thought he wasn't articulate enough, um, never felt clever enough, um, felt too chubby, not cool enough, not attractive enough, not posh enough, not middle class enough. Um, all of this stopped me from pursuing what I knew to be the call of my life. And it pushed me to find affirmation in the completely the wrong places, the wrong people, the wrong relationships, the wrong church. And although it is a result of the world we live in, the only person to really uh, to blame really is me. So I chose to do it. My lack of courage to refuse that way of thinking and be and do what I'm called to be it nearly killed me, to be honest. Like, I was a mess for a long time. And the only thing that rescued me from any of that was actually the Spirit of God. So in all of this, there's always grace, which is an amazing thing, and it's hard to get your head around. And it's God never giving up on me. And through certain people, a few of them are in this room, actually, um, basically kicking me up the backside until I did what they knew was in me and called to me. So it's something that's very real to me. So I'm not talking from a nicey, nice light, oh, I've read a few books on this. This is something that I know about because 15 years of really not engaging with God properly, messy, horrible. And the extension of this, the problem with this is that's a very self-orientated way of thinking about it. But you see, the worst thing about it is the moment we begin 
to dwell in such thinking on ourselves, it impacts the way we view others and the way we engage with others. And it taints our entire relational engagement with the world around us, our community and our friends. What happens is when we see someone's success or their call or their talent, instead of being thankful to God for the breadth of calling people's lives and the way that they, the way God's working in them or like the way that people are lifting them up, which isn't really a problem, we immediately compare that to ourselves. And then jealousy and bitterness and anger kicks in. And we critique and pull apart that person, all those that lift them up, actually. It becomes like a, it's almost like a disease, I'd say. And it, we, we just no longer are grateful for the talent or the, the, the work of God in people's lives. I will use the word talent. But it's, um, secondly, ultimately, your talent and your call and your abilities, the very person you are, is not for you. It's for your neighbour and for your community and for the world. So comparison pushes us to consider our abilities or failings in the light of others. I'm better than at this than them. Why do they do it? Why, why can't I do it? That person is like this in private. If only they knew they weren't so perfect. Why does that person get more attention than me? Why are they so special? What's wrong with me that I don't get a notice or I don't get a chance to do something? And thinking like this pushes us to orientate our thinking into self and to rely on external factors to give us affirmation, love and value, leading us to do the same thing to others. At its very worst, this permeates a community and rot sets in and people get hurt, disillusioned and stuff goes bad. And when we compare ourselves and it becomes unchecked, it inevitably affects those around us. Now, I won't go into it now because just follow my Twitter feed. You'll see how ranty I am about politics. You don't need to hear it tonight. I'm actually, I'm probably not supposed to do it, but I'm not ordained yet, so it's fine. But um, the likes of Trump, Brexit, nationalism that's on the rise in the aftermath of all economic downturn over the past decade or so and ethnic change, you can't tell me that's not down to some form of comparison or jealousy or bitterness that's seeped into the undercurrent of our nation and just the world generally. At the moment, we have less than we had before. It's got to be someone else's fault. Yeah, it's that kind of way of thinking. And do you know what? I love this community, this church. Um, and I love it enough to say this. So please feel my heart when I say it. Because I think God wants to heal a lot of us. And generally our community in general. I think it's a major problem for us on occasion. This comparison and jealousy and self-destructive tendencies to view each other's success as somehow related to our lack of opportunity or failure. Now granted, some of this is mistakes made on behalf of our leaders, myself included. Some of it is the result of the world we live in. Much of it is the result of the spirituality that is positioned around self, our self-gain and self-worth based in others' position. A therapeutic spirituality rather than a sacrificial one. So what will God do for me? When I worship, will he come and see me, not us? It's that way of thinking. It's just something that all of us will wrestle with. But if it seeps in, it can become quite destructive. Now, much is said about like the previously mentioned millennial generation. Um, we call us snowflakes. They call us lazy, soft, precious. And some of it's true, most of it's nonsense. 
although and we do need to listen to it actually rather than just saying yeah they're just grumpy um, generation x's they're not they actually might have something to say to us but one of the things they do do call us is entitled now i hate to say it there is definitely something in that and i'm talking to myself here as much as anybody else um, an entitlement that says that we're unique and special and that we'll do something amazing in life and we'll do the whole we'll get to travel we'll get the nice house the nice car the job we want as long as we work hard enough for it well maybe not work hard for it we should just have it and to have the picture perfect life and it goes one step further and that we feel entitled to everyone's attention and we crave it and we see it as a right the world we live in has brought us up to orientate our entire thinking around ourselves and our needs coupled with a sense of it being almost a right to have those needs met when actually as we'll see later on there is no right that we have other than to die to self now we have some great vicars and leaders and people in this church and as one of them or mini vicar trainee I know we often fail and let people down but I include myself in this none of us are entitled to the attention or direct input of anyone else in this community whether they're a leader or they're doing the coffee or they're just anyone you don't have a, a right or entitlement to that we're not entitled people as followers of Jesus we're people reliant upon grace and not the grace of those we see as important but or influential even but it's the grace of Jesus now what does the bible have to say about this little problem we have lovely so kez is going to do our bible reading if you don't have a bible on you we can pass them around there's some scattered about yeah we're reading from luke 22 14 to 38 yeah where you are go on then come up So this is Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 38. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of God will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Hang on, one who won, yeah, that's fine. For who is greater, the 
The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you what, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. One more? Yeah, go on then. And the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Thank you, Kirst. really hot up here. So um, I could easily jump all over the Bible to see what it says about this. So it's a continuous problem for the people of God. It's not something that's just a, like a little, little smidgen. It's, like it's actually core to a lot of the issues that human beings have generally. And God's incredibly gracious about it, which is good, because otherwise we'd be messed up. So for example, Adam and Eve... The moment Adam and Eve fall, what happens? They become self-aware in comparison to each other. There's an immediate me in relation to them. And they realise their shame. Straight away, their kids, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of him, basically. Another a comparison. Again, with Jacob and Esau, if, if you're new to the Bible, there's all these stories at the beginning. You should read them all because they're sort of little nuggets of gold, to be honest. Um, Moses, who thinks he's so inarticulate that he doesn't step into his call as if that really matters like his eloquence when God decides he tells him this is a big burning bush that's talking to him and then he thinks that his ability to speak is the thing that really matters the Psalms are full of this visceral honesty of people being annoyed at God for showing mercy and patience on their enemies like it's their right or something and Herod even slaughters babies at the threat of a new king in his place and even Jesus, no, bear with me, Jesus didn't compare himself in that way, but he stood in the desert and he's presented by Satan with a chance to have more than the life of an unknown handyman's son in a backwater town. Basically, like the, the very core of sin, the very core of, the, of what is wrong with the human condition comes from us looking at other people. It basically is it's effectively living out jealousy and it's to... It's one of the most significant factors that feeds and results in sin and discord between community, and it's the antithesis of loving our neighbours. To compare ourselves to created human structures, um, situations, is again to reject our very nature as the image of God. We were created to be face-to-face -face with God, in community to each other, not scrambling for the attention of the, or the approval of the, or the affirmation of those around us, but only in the face of the one who created us. Now, Luke 22 
gives a brilliant highlight of this, and it's Jesus' response to it, and I love it. It's, so Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper, this physical, visceral, sensual demonstration of who he is, what he has and will do, and what all Christian, Christian community and the kingdom of God should be based upon. And he tells his disciples that one of them will betray him. They have a little argument about it, but pretty soon they're switching it to who's the best, basically. Who, who, who out of us is like, there's Jesus, and then there's like, who's his second in charge? Now you can imagine Jesus' face at this. Uh, he probably, was, I don't know, he might, to me, Jesus would have been stood there going, um, and saying something like, remember that bread and wine? You know, that, that little bit I just did? You know, the symbolism of sacrificing yourself for the sake of others. You know you're not getting that? You, you missed that? So I can see like this, this exasperated face on him, but his reply is almost so cliche in terms of, especially from a Christian perspective, that we can forget it. And I'm a firm believer that following Jesus is far simpler and far easier than we like to make it. We love to make things complicated. And actually, when you look at the little things Jesus says about following him, He's really precise and he doesn't faff around. He gives like parables to other people and he makes things complicated for those who just don't get him. But for his followers, it's pretty straight to it. So what does he say? He basically says there is no hierarchy or personal elevation in the kingdom of God. He says the greatest must become the youngest. The leader must become the servant. And he carries on telling them, when it comes to the kingdom, it is the, it's to become a rebel. It's to become a criminal in the eyes of the world, to be other to the world, and to face death as an inevitability of being like him. So there's nothing we can bring to our call and to our being, to our lives, that God can't provide for himself. We don't have to bring anything. So I was chatting with the legend that is Michael Dunn. Some of you might know him. If you don't know him, come to the morning service and get to know him. He will mess with your head and you'll probably end up moving to the side of the world to talk to people about Jesus or something, or you'll be deeply convicted of sin or something. It's like Jesus guru, man. He's brilliant. The other day, he gave me this amazing thought, so I can't claim it for my own, even though I wish I could, that there's no handle on the cross. You can't pick it up and take it with you. The only way to pick up your cross and carry it is as a burden and a weight. So crucifixion, Death to self for the sake of the other begins the moment you, think you follow Jesus. It's not something you walk towards. It is, that is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. So as far as the Bible is concerned, there is only one in whom we can legitimately compare ourselves to. The creator who came as a baby, the king who came as a servant, and the warrior God of the Old Testament who came as a peacemaker. Now, what is the antidote to all of this, the, this crippling comparison that we have on ourselves and to others. I'd say I'd love to say there is a quick fix and that with copious amounts of prayer ministry and Holy Spirit zap moments that it will just go away. But, and there's nothing wrong with prayer ministry. I am a confessed charismatic. I think God engages with us in a very real and tangible way. But to me, this isn't, that doesn't work like that. This is about praying and spending time with the person we want to be like and compare ourselves to rather than each other. It's a choice to be made and there's a reason why we spent so much time this year practicing the way of Jesus. Because it's not a passive thing. It's because ultimately this is how this stuff changes. Self-worth 
So I'm not saying this in a harsh way or as somebody who doesn't struggle with this. This is deep in some of my, my messy stuff. It's based on self-worth, self-image, my value, knowing who I am in Jesus and becoming my true self and who I was always made to be. And the same for everybody is found only when we spend time with him purposefully through intimacy with prayer through actually through confession in community so when we share these things actually one of the things i found when we share our jealousy of somebody else with that person or we share our wrestle with that person and the way they are or whatever else the power breaks out of it because all of a sudden it's out in the open and you often you'll find you you find so if you only see 10 percent of what's going on and you compare and judge based on that when you talk to that person and you confess it amongst each other and you live as Christian brother and sister, all of a sudden you see the big picture and you see they're dealing with as much stuff and nonsense as you are and it just goes. Half the time it's because we bottle it up. And through repentance for looking at others, and it's this dirty word in millennial-style charismatic church, repentance isn't that popular, but actually the true core of it, as in to change the way you think, to alter, to allow the spirit to help you alter the way you think and your mind and the way you engage with others and the way you live. Through seeking the face of the one who created you, there's only one person we can ever compare ourselves to, others and the world to, and that person is Jesus Christ. And without grace, we don't even come close. Nobody here really ultimately comes close to who Jesus is. And we should all just work in, from that perspective Everything we have, every opportunity, our bodies, um, our minds, our abilities, our talents, our attractiveness, our everything about us that we strive for and try and seek and try and gain affirmation for in this world, all of that is through grace. And it can just go in an instant. Like, one minute you can be like the bee's knees, you are the person. One wrong word one bad day, one bad family moment, or anything like that, gone. But we weren't made for this fading world, this, this, this stuff, this kind of striving to be something that actually God didn't call us that. He called us to eternity and to live something so much bigger and better and broader and huge in comparison to what we try and strive for and claim to and trying to we get jealous over if you really think about it think of eternity in light of how you look all of a sudden it just fades into nothingness it's all hevel so the whole thing in ecclesiastes so most of us who've been around richard you should find it on the website about ecclesiastes in the way that it's just fleeting actually this life is nothing in face of who god is and what he called us to eternally I want to leave you with this. I found this is a little tweet I found this week. And so to be honest, a little bit of affirmation when you're talking on something like this and this coat comes up, this floored me. So I just want to remind you that God hasn't left you out. Maybe someone else has, but ultimately they don't get to decide things. You're inside a trying circle of constant reciprocal delight. You're an insider. Don't let them fool you. Live like you're loved. Amen.